Happy Monday out there. How's it going, everybody? Hope it's going well and you're excited to start the new week. Uh, what, Where better could you be starting your new week other than listening to mm-hmm. uh, Jeff and myself talk about some stocks and about whatever we think is interesting and in investing at the moment? Hope everyone had a great weekend. Of course, my name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting alongside my co-founder and co-host, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how was your weekend? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Did you have a good weekend? <laughs> I hope to have a very good weekend. It's actually, so we pre-record, so <laughs> yeah. it's Friday, mm-hmm. right? So we're acting like it's Monday. Yes. So did you have a good weekend? Yes, I'm going to have a great weekend. All right, good. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. I'm going to have had a great weekend. There you go. See, that's good. That's a good mindset to have. Uh, of course, you're listening to the, the podcast. We are on iTunes. Actually, somebody did email me asking if we were going to be on Google or on, on, on Android. Okay. And we, we, we got to sort of get on that. So if you are listening okay. and have an Android, uh, we're going to work on getting that on that platform as well. But you are probably listening to this either on our website or on iTunes. Um, of course, mm-hmm. this is the podcast part of our business. Uh, if you are interested in stock write-ups and joining a community of other fund managers, individual investors from all over the world who don't just write about uh, North American stocks right, um, all, over the world. all over the world. Feel mm-hmm. free to go to focuscompounding.com and be sure to sign up using the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and it will give you $10 off the subscription price uh, indefinitely forever as long as you stay a member. So it brings that $60 price down to $50 and um, you know it's a, it's a good situation. So be sure to check that out. Of course, like I said, we want to thank everyone for tuning in. If you do like the podcast, feel free to give us a rate and leave a comment. It does broaden our reach and helps us sort of reach the masses more on iTunes, which of course is good for us. It allows us to continue to produce content to hire people that we think are that write up quality ideas mm-hmm. and to contribute to the website. So be sure to also do that as well. So today we're going to be going over questions that listeners and viewers have asked of us. Of course, Jeff mm-hmm. and I get tons of emails from people. Um, this one looks like a majority of them came from Twitter. Yeah, the Twitter ones. Yeah. Twitter. Every now and then we will tweet out a call for questions. So if you are want to be on the lookout for that in the future, follow. Gosh, I'm just all these promos or all these sales pitches, right? <laughs> follow Jeff at, at Jeff Gannon. And if you want to follow me, follow me at, at Focus Compound. Okay, I promise. Now I'm done now. All right. All right. So the first question comes from at Dark Fire Capital. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's not really the hedge fund name. Dark Fire Capital. He says... Keeping with the theme of your Japanese net net basket, are there any other countries you've looked at recently where you could possibly make that bet again? Uh, the simple answer is no. So can you tell people Japan what this was bet was? Sure. So I bought five Japanese net nets. I put about 50% of my portfolio in five Japanese net nets. They were actually all net cash mm-hmm. stocks, and they were all net cash stocks that had made a profit for at least every year of the last 10 years. And when was this? Uh, this was about six years ago. Mm-hmm. And what drew you to to doing this? Uh, there had been a tsunami. Oh wow! So yeah. I'm guessing the stocks were pretty cheap over there. Uh, there was a tsunami and then a nuclear incident related to that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that got my attention to it. But there have been net nets in Japan for a while. Interesting. And so you, you invested fifty percent in, and, and you, did they all work out? Yes. They did. I mean, there were yeah. five of them, and they all worked out, sure. Nice. And your, your qualifications were they had to be net cash and have 10 years of profitability? Is that what you said? Yeah, they couldn't have any losses, operating losses in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So you have to, get, to give you an recently? idea about that, I've run screens. Yeah. And although it wouldn't count on listed stocks, but it would count OTC stocks, the uh-huh. screen I ran, uh, there have been years in the U.S. in the last 10 years where only one stock may, meets that qualification. Oh, okay. That wow. it has to sell for less than net cash yeah, so really and was. 10 straight years of profits. And I've bought stock, like George Risk is one that I bought that way. Uh-huh. Okay, so I've done it in the U.S. too. But but it ranges in the U.S. from almost none 
to there could be 10 or 20 that meet that qual uh, that that requirement in the early very early 2000s and in maybe 2009 mm-hmm. so like 2001 2009 that happened but normally no um are there other countries not really no uh, there are countries where they're net net. So the problem is um, Japan's fairly low corruption, fairly good accounting, fairly good, um, uh, fairly easy to be able to buy the stocks, really low political risk, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, could I find them in, in Eastern Europe or Latin America or something where it would be hard for me um, maybe to buy into that market um, where the stocks would probably be net nets because of some sort of corruption or political risk thing? Uh, yeah, they're probably things like that. I looked at Greece. Um, I looked through every single stock that I uh, could find publicly traded stock in Greece um, shortly after there were concerns about the that they might leave the euro. Um, and I did not find anything there that was uh, like what I found in Japan. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So, How long did you hold the stocks for? The Japanese net nets? Yep. Only a couple of years. Wow. Um, two were bought out within the first year. Um, I've owned one for a long time, but that, that was a replacement actually of the, of the five. Interesting. So I ended up buying six, I guess, technically. Huh. Interesting. So, but the short answer is no. You haven't seen that. The short answer is no. I mean, things like that have happened. I'm sure people have heard about um, that uh, Warren Buffett in his personal portfolio bought, I don't know, 30 South Korean stocks or something. Um, And that would have been similar what he did. Uh, So these things do happen sometimes. Uh, the, the strange thing was that Japan was just so similar to a lot of countries that I would normally invest in. Mm hmm. And it just wasn't facing a lot of problems that way. The The other thing is that the corporate balance sheets were good, at least for these sorts of companies. What happened when I looked in um, Greece is that the companies had a lot of debt. So these um, these Japanese companies started out with a huge amount of um, debt probably 20 or 30 years ago. But then they've just been piling up cash um, since the, the crash there, uh, which at that time I was looking maybe 20, a little over 20 years probably after the the um crash of their stock market bubble uh so which is also a real estate bubble there so um they've been piling up cash for a really long time net nets and net cash bargains tend to be because you both have to pay off all your debts and pile up cash and your stock has to be going sideways or down mm-hmm. for a long time mm-hmm. they don't really happen just because there's a crash in the market or something i mean sometimes they turn for a moment that way but net nets really happen more from a sideways market and deleveraging of corporations Interesting, um, which I guess makes sense. That's yeah, in, that in the U.S., position. they were there for a long time. Like when you read about Buffett and Graham buying them in the uh, 50s, 60s, um, Graham in the 40s, I'll, even then a lot of that is the history of the Great Depression for those companies because mm-hmm. they grew their working capital so much faster than their stock prices. So that's what happens. Interesting. Definitely interesting. Well, we really want to thank Darkfire Capital for asking that question. The next question comes from at Felix Invests. And he says, what are your thoughts on Movado and Fossil today compared to when you first analyzed the stocks? How did the thesis play out? And just sort of a little backstory, you wrote about both of these stocks for uh, Singular Diligence. Yeah, I wrote right? about Swatch, Movado, and Fossil. So, so all three, yeah. three and, uh, big uh, watchmakers. And all of those reports are on the, the stocks A to Z section of our website. Mm-hmm. So check that out if that's something that uh, you want to read about. Um, but so what are your thoughts on them today? Do you still follow the stocks? Uh, I don't follow them closely or anything. Um, Swatch and Movado gone up. Fossil has gone down a tremendous amount. I was going to say, I think Movado recently just like destroyed earnings or something. It was up like 15% in a day or something. Okay. Like that. Fossil went down an incredible amount and has since recovered a bit from then. Mm-hmm. I actually talked to the 
um, co-writer that I had uh, uh, on um, Singular Diligence. He actually did a lot of the notes and I did the actual writing for mm-hmm. it. But um, the, uh, and he, he was looking at Fossil right at the bottom. I don't remember if he did buy any or not, but he was considering it for the first time then. Mm-hmm. And I should say that I never owned any of these and he didn't own these either. Um, I actually have from the report uh, that um, for Fossil, the thing with Fossil is that it was the riskiest of the three. I was going to say it was the most leveraged. Yeah, it, wasn't it was a, really yeah. leveraged. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we talked about how it has a ton of it had a ton of stores. It also had a lot of debt. It's what I would call a magic formula stock. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't I know think if all it technically was up. on the magic formula. I think, I think they were. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it's typical of what I think of with that kind of stock. So it had you would say it had the biggest upside of any of those three stocks, but it also had the biggest downside. Mm-hmm. And what turned out to happen is the downside. Um, so I, it, it, of the three, it would definitely have been the least likely for me to put my own money into. Mm-hmm. And this shows you some of the difficulties of writing a newsletter where you have to pick things every month. We picked like five banks. We picked three watchmakers. Um, and we talked a lot about that. I think uh, I know that I said at the end of it that uh, that Fossil would not be a good investment, but it would be clearly an excellent speculation. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a, it's a good investment in a portfolio of 10 or 20 equal size positions, but Fossil is not a good choice for a portfolio of four or five. Mm-hmm. And my portfolio would never have 10 or 20. Um, stocks in it so it sure. was just never going to be in in mind Movado was different Movado had piled up a ton of cash um and was uh really really cheap on that basis mm-hmm. and and really safe um as compared to fossil uh and then swatch is a whole different thing i i wouldn't have invested in swatch because of the risk to china they had significant risk because they're big in china and a lot of times those watches are given as um bribes uh, we did some math on how much how likely it is that of how much of swatches profits come from bribes in uh, china did did uh when did you do you remember the year that you wrote about this was this before the apple watch came out uh i don't remember if the apple watch had come out or we knew it was coming out interesting um that's the biggest risk to fossil sure and yeah. to some extent movado too they license things for swatch it's not a very big risk mm-hmm. um because of the they're in incredibly expensive luxury goods is how they make a lot of their money and also in other parts of the uh, world more so um do you have thoughts on it today compared to when you first analyzed it uh none of them are more attractive i would say than they were then i guess potentially fossil is just because the stock came down so much like 14 dollars a share yeah but it recovered significantly from its low point there um it's a very leveraged sort of speculation again there. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all done things, or Movado and Fossil have done things that I would worry about, sort of diversification, trying to buy into, um, uh, to make things that are more similar to the Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the others, the real luxury ones, have more incorporated those sorts of things without you being able to notice that that's happening. So it still looks like it's all... Um, uh, that it does involve electronics, but actually it does doing some extra features. Uh, I guess it's a little off topic, but you did mention the magical formula. Do you mm-hmm. think that's a good a good? Uh, no, no. I don't like have you ever back tested any of that stuff? Or uh, no, I've not back tested the magic formula. Um, I I it's a my problem with magic formula. We had a, a podcast we talked about moat. Mm-hmm. Magic formula is picking stocks without knowing if they have a moat yeah sure so it's picking high return on capital stocks and just hoping that they have a moat yeah that the market you're, bas- you're doing a basket of it right yeah but you're just hoping the market isn't very good at knowing what a moat is and what a moat isn't sure 
And the problem is if the market gets very good at being able to pay attention to moats, then that formula doesn't work to, to me, uh, thinking about it. I mean, I know about times in history when it did work mm-hmm. because we talked to... Uh, well, back test pretty well. Yeah, back test well. And he, before then, it probably did even better. Mm-hmm. Before he back tested that. Because I've looked at, at um, things that, that people talked about in the 50s and 60s. And constantly, investors underpaid for the kind of uh, businesses that Buffett would like. Mm-hmm. They underpaid for things without tangible assets. They underpaid for newspapers and media companies and advertising agencies and all that stuff. Now they don't do that. Sure. What about, we'll take it a step further. Mm-hmm. What about the acquires multiple? Do you have an opinion on that? That'll work better. Because you're just buying a basket of cheap stocks in a way? Yeah, EV to EBITDA is the best screening thing around the world, other than other than low price compared to networking capital. Interesting. So other than net net. Low EVD, but I and net net are the two things that should work everywhere all the time. Basically. A basket, buying a basket of it and doing it that way? Yeah, buy a basket. Yeah. But, it, but as long as you can prove... It, it, even better than buying a basket is making sure that they're um, high enough quality companies, they're safe enough. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I don't like about the magic formula in terms of what it turns up. Is it... it I mean, maybe it also po- uh, got Movado and stocks like that. Sure. Too. Yeah. But um, the stock that would be on there constantly is Fossil, and that's the one I would be most worried about. Sure. A- about the the risks to it, the leverage that it has, the moat, uh, whether there is a moat or not, versus something that's playing it very safe, um, like Movado or something that has the one that we thought had the widest moat is is Swatch. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What has performed the best? Uh, since we picked it, maybe Movado. Yeah. But it was incredibly cheap. Yeah, Movado, well, Movado was cheap for a may have been a net net, yeah, ten years mm-hmm. ago or something. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Felix, for asking that question. Next question comes from at uh, yuvj11. Says really like your past posts that stressed and discussed thinking like a businessman, which of course you always you always uh, hit on the, that key part. And then he proceeds to say it would be good to see something on how to develop a framework for thinking about slash identifying the key value drivers of a business. An example to determine the factors that really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on the company. Mm-hmm. So, like we talked about, um, Tandy. So, with Tandy, um, the key factors are what are their gross margins, especially on their um, the non-leather sales. Okay. Okay. And we know they're astronomically high. And the question is just how can they open new stores? Sure. Those are the things that really drive it. Mm-hmm. So, can you have these really high gross margins and selling a lot of stuff that isn't leather? And at existing stores, it's pretty easy to kind of look at that and see if they're having success. And I would say they are. Their existing stores are successful. But the problem for you as an investor going forward is can they open new stores? And I kind of zeroed in on the idea of, well, are, do they have enough high-quality managers? Mm-hmm. And can they grow that? that? That sounds kind of silly. And even when I talk to you about people, I think people don't believe that's really the problem that I think Tandy had. Mm-hmm. But I really do believe that's the problem that Tandy had. They couldn't get managers in at the right price, uh, the right salary. Um, to be able to be in the stores. And unless you have a good manager to run a store, you're not going to have success that way. So I think people was the answer in that business. Um, and so it's, but like that's something that I don't think people would think of normally. Uh-huh. And for other businesses, it wouldn't necessarily be that important. I mean, if you're opening a restaurant in every um, major city in the country, and you, if you want to open a thousand restaurants, you'll find enough managers. There are tons of people who are running other restaurants. Sure. It's pretty easy to do. Yeah. Um, you don't need, you can saturate the country with them so people can stay in their local area running a, in a restaurant. So you would just never think of it that a store manager needs to be able to move all over the country, that store managers might not be paid that high in this niche, and that, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have someone who knows something about leather crafting. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. so. Interesting. 
Perfect. Well, thank you very much for asking that question. Next question comes from at compound 26. And he says inversion. Are you aware of situations? And then he puts in parentheses, studies, back tests, anything where value investing has not worked over the long term. That's a really hard uh, question yeah. because though there's two sorts of ways to look at that. So academic studies normally aren't of value investors. They're of a factor. What do you mean they're, by that? They're, of, they're a statistical, um, they're a back test of a statistical approach to investing mm -hmm. like low price to book okay. or EV to EBITDA mm -hmm. or magic formula. That isn't necessarily how value investors invest. I can come up with lots of examples of value investors who did poorly, but I don't know that they would have done poorly if they just stuck to a mechanical strategy. Sure. Now, some strategies that people think of as value strategies I don't think have much success historically at all. So like um, PE, an example is just buying low PE stocks. Does that really work? I, I'm not sure that it does as compared to something like EV to EBITDA. Sure. EV to EBITDA works better. Mm -hmm. um, for the market, you constantly see people talking about the forward PE on the S&P 500 or something. That's not predictive in like any sort of way about what yeah. the market's going to return, mm -hmm. but the Schiller PE is. So, yeah, I'm aware of that the PE is. I mean, I did a, a, a whole research project like on that idea of going back and looking at different ways of predicting what the returns in, this and, in the uh, Dow in that case would be based on earnings. And I never found it to be useful to use the most recent PE for last year or, you know, the expected PE for next year. So there have been studies of things like that, I'm sure, and I'm sure they don't work that well, um, and people believe in them. But of like a good metric like EV to EBITDA um, or net-net, the, the two really big ones um, that I think are sort of associated with value investors and that make the most sense to me are buying uh, low EV to EBITDA stocks, which is buying basically for the cash flow. It's sort of like how private equity What's buyer low to you? Well, anything lower than five is really good. Yeah. Um, it's very low. Anything low. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's yeah. possible. I mean, I, I don't remember if Tandy was seven or six on that. Um, we talked about NACO. That would have been, I don't know, seven or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so you think less than 10 is pretty low? Yeah, you don't want to pay more than yeah. 10 times uh -huh. EBITDA ever. For, yeah. um, but as a general rule of thumb for Eight people. is the normal price. Okay. There historically, if you're mm -hmm. looking at it. But uh, tax rates used to be higher. So, I mean, that does affect it. But... Yeah, I mean, I think as a value investor, I would say you don't want to pay more than eight times EBITDA normally. What's interesting is, and I was sort of talking about this a few questions ago, like, for example, um, the magical formula, mm -hmm. how it's how it's back tested pretty well. I wonder how mm -hmm. it's what I call trade tested, like, or it know, hasn't done well that way. You know, so and like going forward, yeah, how, how is it actually done when people are actually putting real money to work, real emotions or whatever, and actually, right. you know, yeah. yeah, are you familiar with that at all? I don't think it's done well at all, really? uh, but I think there's been trouble with people duplicating it. There's a lot of people who say they can't duplicate the results that he had and stuff. Um, Why is that? I don't know. That gets into a whole different question about exactly what they use. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other problem that you have with a lot of these um, things is that when you read uh, journal papers and stuff about this, you'll notice that a lot of times the best results they get are in the really small stocks, mm -hmm. and yet they won't discuss that, and they'll kind of only focus on big ones. There's a tendency for them to prefer to talk about it and to the data is cleaner for them. It's considered that anyone could use it, funds could use it and stuff. Like mm -hmm. from a more like looking at it as a marketing inefficiency, yeah. it's more interesting to prove that something is not working even for uh, th that even giant funds and stuff aren't causing there to be an efficient market. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that these things like EV to EBITDA and um, net nets and near net nets and things like that, they're really 
things of under a hundred million, under 300 million, like that's really where you would expect to get the really good results. Um, and you know, uh, I wonder if he doesn't talk about that much because he runs a, doesn't he run a mutual fund now? Maybe he has certain restrictions where he can't even go that low. Yeah. Well, that would be true for, for true for lots of people. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying in terms of the, um, where the results will actually be good. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things I've looked at and back tested. Um, and I, I, common sense works best. So there's some yeah. things that don't make sense. Like, for instance, can you find times when pr- low price to book doesn't work? Yeah, but I don't think value investors would just blindly buy low price to book if it has a lot of leverage. Sure. Mm-hmm. I've talked about this with the net net one. So I always say a screen doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah, but it doesn't require like like what Ben Graham did is basically you filled out a little a little worksheet. Mm-hmm. OK, and you just kind of checked off that this is a, a the, what the liquidation value is here. And then then just this is a decent boring business and then you don't buy the net nets that are you know frauds and that are um have never made money and things like that if you just look at something like net nets or low evd but a good example like you asked how low and stuff like that yeah say yep. say you pick six times ebitda mm-hmm. but then you sort by the number of years of consecutive profits mm-hmm. okay it's very simple to do very easy you'll get a much better list and it's a list that i would hope is the list that actual value investors would buy into that they want to buy something which has an EBITDA EBITDA of three this year, but then EBITDA plunges next year because it's a super sure. cyclical stock. Why would you do that? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's like there have been times where Southwest Airlines, okay, has had a low EBITDA EBITDA. That's something that a value investor would buy. Sure. Yeah. Okay. It's a predictable company. You know, it's, it, but you want to buy into, you know, a shipbuilder and it has this one year that EBITDA looks really good. Sure. Um, or a miner. We talked about, you know, miners and things like that. So, uh, I'm sure that there's lots of things on screens that don't work that way. And even with um, Magic Formula, they exclude all financials and utilities. And a lot of things exclude financials and utilities. Interesting. Last question. Uh, thank you very much, actually, Compound26, for answering or asking that question. Uh, last question. It says, do you ever short stocks? And then what's your opinion on shorting? I don't short stocks. So, no, you do not. But I am very curious. Well, actually, I know the answer. But I'm okay. sure a lot of people are very curious on what's your opinion on short selling. Uh, I, I don't like, uh, short selling as an idea for how an investor would make better returns. I think your returns will be worse if you both, uh, short, go short and long. Yeah. And that's a major concern that I have with a few, um, companies actually. Like I've looked at, um, uh, Greenlight, the reinsurer, which is the money's managed by David Einhorn, uh, and he's long short. Yep. And I just don't know that I could get comfortable with an investment strategy that's long short for using for an insured just because I, it's hard for me to predict what the investment returns will be. And I feel that they'll, they'll be lower. Mm-hmm. And also Fairfax was written up on our, um, focus compounding site, not by me, by a, a member. And that's another one where even at good prices on it, uh, I'd be worried because in the past they've used, um, different ways of basically betting against the market, mm-hmm. sort of hedging, but that sort of thing, um, can really lower the long-term returns that you're going to get. Interesting. And in, it's, are you for if you think there's some sort of fraud shorting or are you just more so just stick it away? I mean, like, for example, some people, they don't short just based on valuation because, right. I mean, the past you look at, I mean, it's very public. I'm not taking shots, but like Whitney mm-hmm. Tilson, he publicly wrote about the fact that, um, you know, running a short book in a, in a this crazy bull market that we've had it have really taken out a lot of people that that short stocks, you know, and mm-hmm. um, you could also make the argument of indexing. And how that's sort of become the new thing that that is obviously probably not good for people that short stocks as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned before because that, it, I mean, you know, lifts lifts the tide. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned before that there's stocks that I've seen that I think are frauds. Yeah, and I've never shorted them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't talk about them normally. I try not to talk about them ever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you could short them. They probably go to zero. I mean, the couple that were uh, Chinese reverse mergers that I um, talked to with people who who asked me personally about it, you know, do you think this is a fraud? I said yes, and, mm-hmm. and they went to zero. Yeah, but. Um, but that's not how I want to spend my time shorting those things. Yeah, it's a tough game. Yeah, I mean, do you do you, are you for though as using like a hedge to your portfolio, or do you just think it's no. better to be long only? No, uh, I think it's better to be long only. I, d- I don't actually pay. The, you have to remember that those people that are doing that, I think it's a professional thing that wants to short. Sure. Because you either want to get your results to look um, less volatile mm-hmm. in some way that you perform fine in all different sorts of markets, or you want to outperform the index. Yeah. And I've talked about Alpha. this. Yeah. I've talked about this before. I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could make 15% a year for 15 years and the S and P somehow makes 20% for 15 years. Okay, fine. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Yeah. But I want to make 15% a year over 15 years when the S and P does five. Yeah. And I've done that. You know what I mean? There've been, the, we're looking back at a period where it's not much better than that. Sure. So, um, if you go back to 2000 to today, what I don't know what the number is, but it might be 6% or something. It's mm-hmm. not a lot better than that. So you want to be able to make 15, 20%, something like that. You certainly want to be able to do 10% all the time over long periods, regardless of what the market does. And you can do that by picking uh, a concentrate portfolio of sometimes they're micro cap stocks. Sometimes they're just, they're different sorts of stocks from the rest of the market. I mean, my portfolio doesn't really resemble the market very much. Mm-hmm. You know, you um, probably like that, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. But I mean, uh, but it could resemble the market if the market was really cheap. Sure. Like I wouldn't mind, you know, in, um, it might have looked a lot more like the market in 2009, early 2009, um, that I own more things that were similar to the, the overall stock market. Mm-hmm. But then at that moment, I expect returns to be pretty good for the market, you know. So I always want to be positioned in a way that I think I can make 10, 15% a year over the next 10 to 15 years if mm-hmm. I just hold what I have now. Shorting's tough too because you have to pay to borrow those shares, right? An interest rate. Back yeah, in the day. Does, well, like Weight Watchers is a good example of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have some information from some people about how much it would have cost to borrow at certain times. So the idea that you know people think that it would have been possible to make a lot of money off Weight Watchers that way, I don't know. And then, of course, you also have the problem that um, Weight Watchers then went on to more than double from the price that we originally wrote it up at yeah. so I, it fell by 90 percent, but then it ended up at double the original price so. I, I was watching a a, a, a lecture or a speech or whatever you want to call it uh, jim channels was talking and he was talking that back in the day you actually used to get paid the interest rate to hold that the stock not have to pay it did you know that i think no, he said like no. it used to be like eight you you could get paid like eight percent or something like that to Hold it, like you know how like now you when you borrow you have to pay the interest rate. Mm-hmm. He said something like that back in the day. I didn't I didn't know that. I mean I'm assuming that's true. If that's if I didn't butcher what he said, but mm-hmm. but yeah, short selling is definitely a definitely a tough game, huh? Yeah, and I just think that it it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make any sense for individuals. Um, and I I I mean the the returns long term in stocks are really good. Yeah even if bought it at fairly normal prices. So even if you're just paying, you know, the historical price, if you limit yourself to trying not to pay more for businesses than what they've traded at in the last hundred years on average, you know, in a public American company, then you're going to get returns that are eight, nine, 10% a year. So sure. to try to be shorting things. The other thing that I think I uh, mentioned to you privately, that's a huge issue that I see with shorting is uh, 
the incentives are completely against you sure. for shorting. Yeah. They're completely for you. And, that, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. Like the incentives at Weight Watchers of all of the management of the board of everyone involved in it is yeah. to turn it around and make a lot of money. Yeah. Their incentives are not to um, crumble the company. And, yeah, yeah. And the incentives of the bank aren't even to do that. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. You know, usually your incentives are, and, and even true for something like say there's something with a lot of cash and, um, the management is, is doing bad things and, and whatever. There are incentives from outsiders to try to take it over, mm-hmm. to change things, yeah. right? They're constantly these Value incentives. creation. Yeah. yeah. There's constantly these incentives for people inside the company and for activists and stuff to make it more profitable, a business, to make it more successful, to make you money as an owner. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of incentives for them to do um, bad things. Sure. You know? Makes so, sense, they're, yeah. so they're not things that are helping you out as a short seller. You're really going against everyone's incentives. You're sort of betting with rivals, I guess. Like... Um, I think Chainos is short um, GameStop, or I think he talked about GameStop at least. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be an example where I guess you're saying, well, I'm on the side of the incentives for the publishers and, and for some other companies that, that might make higher gross margins on digital. Interesting. But, I, yeah, I don't like it because I think that in the very long run, I don't think your results are going to be as good shorting as if you just – Held good companies. Yeah, and I think we're in a bubble right now, and yet that doesn't mean that I short uh, anything, and it doesn't mean that I hedge anything. So I was going to say that. So what, do you, do you believe in hedging your portfolio? No, no, not by so you hedge by just buying. Just um, what's your hedge essentially? Or do you not even I think hold about cash it? until I find something that I think is going to return at least ten percent a year, uh-huh. uh, and then I buy that thing. So you're not for maybe buying some puts on uh, no. like yeah. Uh, if I or if, something if like I that. didn't write about it and stuff, I wish that there were a way that I wouldn't know what the S and P returned every year. Yeah, it's not useful information for me to know. Mm-hmm. I don't compare myself to it. Um, I'm just trying to do the smartest individual. Um, buying of a position, right? To have it in the the portfolio best position for the future constantly. That's all that I really need to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I do something like buy NAC or whatever, it, it it's just that I think, oh, here's something that will return 10% a year while I own it um, with a high certainty of it. Or, you yeah, know, the predictive you know, yeah, yeah. So that's basically what I try to do. And, and I don't pay attention to, um, you know, the possibility of shorting things and stuff like that. But I also don't pay attention to like, oh, well, the market will probably return 5% a year. Mm-hmm. So let me lower my standards a bit. I don't do that either. I'm yeah. not interested in, you know, I really don't pay attention to Truly like, a stock picker. Yeah, I'm not paying attention to what the opportunity cost is even. Like people say, well, you don't want to just sit on cash or do whatever. I It's always the same thing for me, which is do I feel that long only you're getting 10% or more a year? Mm-hmm. And then you invest in that. So no, there's no place for shorting for me that way. Um if you were going to do it, I guess, if you had like some incredible um, accounting background, and then maybe if you never talked about it. I think if you talk about it, obviously, the problem would be... A lot of people um, hate you. Psychologically, it would be difficult. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Crazy. So, maybe an accountant who... Well, you look at like Herbalife, right? Mm-hmm. Bill Ackman, who spent over... I mean, he's publicly said over $50 million. Who knows what that number is? I'm sure it's really big to go after Herbalife. And you look at that battle, how long that battle was well, with Herbalife. And I mean, they, they fought back incredibly hard, which yeah. I mean, you would expect if there isn't, if they're not a fraudulent company that they would or whatever, but you know, whatever you're or for the company or not for the company, that was a crazy battle for five years or whatever. And then he eventually, you know, sold out whether that was because of redemptions or he didn't, mm-hmm. you know, he's a fiduciary, whatever. Let's not talk about that, but you know, it's a tough game. Yeah, and the other thing is you you have to get the – it's just like going long the stock. You have to get the outcome that you want in terms of the stock. Mm-hmm. So he could say, well, you know, this is a pyramid scheme. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. It's a pyramid scheme. That doesn't mean that um, uh, that that you're going to – you know, if there's cash flow and stuff, that doesn't mean that you're going to uh, make money on your short position. And we, there's two stocks that were written up on the um, 
focus combating website that are often um, had been shorted or had uh, people critical of them, which are J- J2 Global and um, Simpress. Simpress mm-hmm. is Vistaprint. Yep. Um, and in both cases, when I read old short um, write-ups from them, from people, uh, I, I agreed with a lot of things they said about the decline, you know, that Vistaprint can't grow forever, um, that that uh, J2 Global couldn't um, continue to grow EFAX. And so, it, you know, organically, these things were going to run into a wall, either in the case of Vistaprint, they were going to just not have more customers they could bring in, or in the case of um, J2 Global, they were just decaying organically. But the problem with that is they were producing free cash flow. Mm-hmm. And they can use that to buy other businesses. Sure. Like J2 bought um, websites and things. Vistaprint expanding to other stuff. Um, so over time, you could be right about your uh, original thesis about it. Yeah. But if they're producing free cash flow, they can go and use it somewhere else. I mean, the danger that you have there is like, imagine you think, okay, well, I'll short Berkshire Hathaway in the 60s because the textile uh, mills are going yeah, out of business. Yeah, but what happened? Well, you were yeah, right. The textile yeah. mills did go out of business, but the incentives were to invest in other stuff. Sure. Now, normally you don't have an investor as good as Warren Buffett, but if we took over some company that was falling apart, mm-hmm. we would try to do our best sure. to make some money out of it. And that could be the reason that your short thesis doesn't work out. Yeah. So I really don't like how the incentives are completely aligned with long uh, investors. And I would, you know, it would be very hard. There's just everything about it that makes it seem like shorting is inherently a worse type of investment. It's like buying a low quality asset. It, to me, it's like saying, well, should you own gold? Yeah, I'm sure there's some times and things where gold is better mm-hmm. than other things. But if you could own farmland, timberland, stocks, why would you own oh, gold? No, in the sure. really long term, it's not going to work out. And in yeah. the really long term, if you're going to try to short things for 10, 20 years versus investing in them for 10, 20 years, th- investing in them is what's going to work. Yeah. But you do believe that it's good to study short selling. Do you think that only makes you could make you a better investor? Yeah. I mean, if it, you understand it and sort of red flags to look for to... To maybe, I mean, you yourself said that you there's a company, couple companies that you're like, oh no, they're frauds, but you and you just sort of sideswept them. You didn't even go down. You just Absolutely. went to the next stock, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, there's a lot that I don't have to have. An, I like not having to have an opinion about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a fraud. Like I, I mentioned before um, in an earlier podcast, there was one where the auditor is bad. Well, that's all I needed to know. I don't really know that there's anything wrong with the company, but I'm telling you that's a bad auditor. I know that. Yeah. That's enough for me. Mm-hmm. If I was going to short it, I'd have to learn all about what's yeah. going on here, why they have that. Yeah. Or there are some other ones where um, it was once a legitimate business. I can prove it was. But now there's someone, uh, a controlling shareholder who, who's a crook. Well, that's all I need to know. For uh, If you're just going to invest in them, you're going to go, okay, that's all I need. I don't, I, I don't need to buy this stock with that person running it. Interesting. Whereas if you were short selling it, I'd have to figure that out. I yeah. have to prove it. I have to go public yeah. with it. This would be an awful experience. It's a long battle. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyways. Well, any other... That That's the, actually... <laughs> that's the last question. You know what's funny? Where you said, well, let's see how long we can make this podcast. 34 minutes. 34 minutes? So okay. So we thought that wasn't going to last very long, but <laughs> that last question, I think, got us pretty far. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to us today. Of course, this is uh, the Focus Compounding Podcast. You are listening to the the voice part of our business. Mm-hmm. If you want to uh, get access to investment ideas and be able to correspond with other investors, which we have a bunch of individual investors and fund managers and uh, pretty much just all over the board and pretty much worldwide, which is yeah, to my surprise. Worldwide. I mean, it's crazy when I see we get a subscriber from like, I mean, just some small like little place around the world. It's, it's mm-hmm. incredible. I would say 50% is uh, United States. The other 50% is um, 
not domestic, so out of the out of the country. So it's uh, obviously as we're based here in, in Dallas, Texas, mm-hmm. it's certainly pretty cool to see. Um, of course, if you do enjoy the podcast and you like what we're doing, feel free to give us a, a, a rating. Of course, it helps out our podcast. It helps out our business and also leave a comment as well. That sort of broadens our reach. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow Jeff at, at Jeff Gannon and you can follow me as well or one of us, maybe follow Jeff over me at, at Focused Compound. And of course, as I said, uh, be sure to sign up using the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and that will give you uh, some money, which is $10 off your subscription price uh, forever. So it takes a $60 uh, subscription price down to $50, and that is indefinite as long as you stay a member. Mm-hmm. I hit on it. All good? That's all, and you can also get weekly memos. So I did not. Yeah, so as well. So Jeff, uh, he writes, uh, this is for free if you want to go to the website and uh, you sign up using your email. This is secure data. We don't sell your email. We don't do anything with it. No spam. You will receive a weekly memo, 500 plus words in typical Jeff Gannon fashion on a investment principle that he will write out and send it to you every week. And it's not just a sales pitch where we're saying, oh, go read this this article that's behind a paywall. That's You'll definitely get something out of it. Oh, yeah. No, it's not a marketing thing. All no, good. It's just me writing up a idea for, you know, not a stock idea, a principle, an investing principle. Investing for... principle. So a tool yeah. to add to the toolkit. Mm-hmm. That is it. Perfect. Well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in. We hope everybody has a great day, and we'll see you in the next podcast.